Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Did you know that Donald Trump actually got more votes, Latino votes, than Mitt Romney? Did you know that Donald Trump started to increase places in Florida, his Latino representation? How can a xenophobe, how can somebody like this guy garner the Latino vote? You know, back in 2020, I spoke to Dr. Dr. Pastor, Dr. Manuel Pastor, and he said, he explained what was going to happen with the Latino vote back then. And he looks like a genius now because not many people were listening. You know, so today we speak to him again and we talk about what happened with the Latino vote and the Republican Party. And is the Latino vote veering off away from the Democratic Party? Is it a shoo-in that Democrats have the Latino vote? I'll see. It's, it's, it's not. But to earn it requires that the symmetry between the values of the, Repub- of the Democratic Party is placed in symmetry with that of the values of Latinos, which sometimes wavers in on many issues. So Dr. Pastor is going to talk about that. But we also have Liz Cheney, a piece that she did on MSNBC, where she really excoriated not just, not just Meadows, but the party in general for being a party of autocracy, a party of insurrectionists, to put it bluntly, treasonous people. And Chuck Todd, we all understand how these folks are really hurting America with their vaccine stance. When even a Republican doctor cannot just come out and say, we need to get serious about this disease and talks about economy and all these things without taking into account the reality of COVID, we know that's a party in trouble. Elon Musk says, build back better. He doesn't want build back better. His specific goals, it spends too much money. Elon Musk forgets, as Farid Zakaria points out, that in effect, he was a parasite to us all because he was a parasite to the government who gave him over $400 million, who gives him all the contracts to fly his spaceships, who gives him the technology. He is building off of the technology we all paid for. And now he wants to say, uh, by the way, uh, we don't need Build Back Better to help those people who we climbed on their backs to get forward. 
Look, we have a great show for you today. We're going to talk about all these issues with the pieces that we do. So stay Hang tight. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics done right.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what that nour- nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. We're going to get busy. Let's get busy. Lincoln Project Stuart Stevens hits the nail on the head. I want you to listen to this and then we'll go ahead and take it on the other side. It is prescient. I want to play this Axios interview with Congressman Jim Clyburn. Take a listen. For a party such as the Republican Party, that my parents were members of, for them to turn the whole party apparatus over to one person means you're no longer a party, but you're now a cult. And that's what is happening. And it's time for the right-thinking people in this country to step away from cult worship. But Stewart, Adam Kinzinger stepped away and he's not running for re-election. Liz Cheney is a target, constant target tonight on Fox News. So what's the answer? Well, look, I, I have one disagreement with uh, the congressman there. I don't think that Donald Trump changed the party. I think Donald Trump revealed the party. These people are what they want to be. The Republican Party is very comfortable being an autocratic movement now. And that's hard for a lot of us who worked in the party to come to grips with. But I don't know any other conclusion to come to in any kind of honest intellectual sense. They are about the business of changing what we've always known as American democracy. There was a plot to end the peaceful transition of power. And Mitch McConnell surely knew about this PowerPoint. He did nothing. You can't count. It's just it's it's at a point that really is almost unimaginable for us. And to understand the point, it's essential. And that's why I hit the Republican politicians and work with the Republican person. And here's what I mean. Listen to what Stewart said. Donald Trump revealed who the party is, not that Donald Trump changed the party. The leadership of the party works for the plutocracy. The leadership of the party works for the corporate structure, but they have to mimic that or make believe that they support the average citizen. And how do they do that? They create angst among the citizenry. They create angst among different genders. They create angst among different races, etc. Because in dividing, they can conquer because they know that their policies individually cannot stand up alone. Unfortunately, they are not the sole purveyors or supporters of the plutocracy, of the oligarchy, of the corporatocracy. They, are, they, they have their, their 
their fingers in both parties, uh, less so in the, in the Democratic Party than in the Republican Party, but they have just enough to create chaos. And what we showed here is that the chaos can go overboard when they believe they have no other alternative. And January 6th was a group believing, a sect led by Donald Trump, who believed they had no alternative. So they created that faction, that structure to create what was ultimately going to be the destruction of democracy. We have to understand how these things operate. They're not what you're going to hear on the mainstream media who caters everything they say, not solely towards you, the people, but also the plutocracy that they themselves are dependent on. Norm Olstein, who is one of those um, one of those guys that are pretty straightforward all of the times, he had something to say about that. So here's Norm Ornstein. The fact is that the entire leadership of this party, and that includes Mitch McConnell, who is a slightly more benign version, is doing nothing to put any guardrails around the people who are uh, supporting a violent insurrection. And we're seeing this play out uh, outside of Washington as well, including the alarming actions by Robin Voss and the leaders of the Wisconsin legislature trying to hijack the election process. Honestly, it's not a party. It's a cult. And we have to be utterly alarmed at the direction that this is taking. We can't survive as a country without a viable two-party system. And if we don't have leaders willing to stand up to this uh, set of violent responses, and Kevin McCarthy is pathetic in that respect. We're in deep, deep trouble. We are in deep trouble. What he's trying to explain to us is that the nation, a lot of people don't, you know, do you, have you ever felt that you are watching somebody, friend of yours, you love this friend, and you're constantly trying to help this friend, but you're constantly watching them self-destruct. And there's nothing you can do about it. How many of you feel that way about the country? But the only difference is this. You, can, you know who the perpetrators are. You know who the protagonist of this entire thing is. Or protagonists, plural, are. It's the media. It's a, it's a, it's a plutocratically paid media, meaning media paid by the oligarchy, as well as politician paid by the oligarchy, all ganging up on the American people. A lot of our Republican brother, uh, Republican politicians, okay, are always talking about doing things right, right? In other words, they want to make sure and, but at the same token, the things that's necessary to do right, they don't want to do, as in getting people vaccinated. I want you to listen to this senator. This senator purport, purports to be a doctor. How can, a, how can anybody listen to someone who purports to be a doctor that speaks this way? Check this out. We'll take it on the other side. Joining me now is Republican Senator Roger Marshall, Kansas. He is a medical doctor, but he is opposed to the mandate. Senator Marshall, thank you uh, for coming on and welcome to Meet the Press. Thanks, Chuck. Glad to be here. Let me start with this. Uh, if you have no mandate, what is your plan to get more people vaccinated? 
because it appears vaccines are still our only way out of this pandemic. So our plan is to be honest with Americans. Look, about 30 percent of Americans right now have chosen not to get the vaccine. But what the biggest impact to be right now is to get boosters into seniors. That's what's going to stop hospitalizations and stop deaths. If you're a senior citizen and haven't got your booster yet, shame on you. Please go do that. If you have underlying health care conditions, if you're diabetic, if you're overweight, please go get the booster because you're going to get the virus, uh, be exposed to it. I'll guarantee it. And if you don't have that booster, we know the vaccines kind of run out after about five to six months. Natural immunity would help. And even those with natural immunity may want to consider getting the booster as well. And we know that mandates don't work. From a practical stand standpoint, mandates are going to cause an economic shutdown. It's going to exacerbate inflation. It's going to cause brownouts. It's going to cause supply chain disruptions and national security issue. Think about this. Half of the National Guard is not vaccinated yet. What would be happening in Kentucky right now if we shut down half of the National Guard? You said something interesting. You said if senior citizens haven't gotten that booster, shame on you. Is that your attitude for any unvaccinated person in the hospital right now? Because 80 percent of hospitalizations at a minimum right now in the northern tier where we're hitting close to max are are the unvaccinated with covid Shame on them. Look, I, I think I've been one of the leaders from the start encouraging people to get the vaccine. This, in the summer of this year, I was encouraging people to get boosters. If the CDC could have pivoted sooner, we would have saved thousands of lives. I think being honest with people, the CDC needs to acknowledge natural immunity. Look, as a physician, I was never able to talk to anybody into stopping smoking by a mandate. And by the way, let's talk about eating healthy and, and exercising every day and getting seven hours of sleep avoided stress. Those are the things that we can all be doing to help minimize the impact of this virus. You know, you brought up smoking. I know at our company here, if you're a smoker, you have to pay more. If you don't get vaccinated, should you have to pay for your own health care? Should taxpayers and more importantly, is it a bizarre incentive to the unvaccinated to give them unemployment benefits? There's not a one-size-fits-all solution. I think that that problem will be best solved locally. So if a local employer uh, you know, wants to make those type of decisions, I get it. Uh, I'm just against any type of federal uh, mandates of any type, especially an, an unconstitutional federal vaccine mandate. Uh, again, think from the practical standpoint what that's going to do to the economy, inflation. I rattled off all those other issues that's going to impact. I, actually, so I, look at the big picture. Look well, at the big I, picture. I understand that. Well, look at the big picture of this pandemic. Everything you rattled off that you said would be impacted by a mandate is what we're living through now. Uh, the only way to get past the supply chain problems, to get past COVID, get people vaccinated. The only way to get more workers uh, to show up is to make it safer, to get more people vaccinated. Everything you described here, all of our problems are because we're still in the pandemic and because people haven't gotten vaccinated. How does how does trying to delay the end of this pandemic better for the economy. 92% of Americans have some level of immunity to this virus based upon the CDC website. So let's start there. And, and really, the messaging coming out of the White House has to acknowledge natural immunity and be honest with America. Look, if based upon years of experience, mandates don't work. Let me mandates ask you this. Don't work. You, you have talked about I, natural immunity. You've talked about natural immunity a lot. Would you advise somebody to get the virus rather than get the vaccine? Uh, of, of course not. But if you've had the virus, that needs to be acknowledged. We spend a... No. 
uh, you know, I, 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 my mind was going around in circle. You know what? To solve, let's just go exercise some more. Let's just go ahead and eat better. All of, by the way, all those things are good. We want to exercise more. We want to eat. We want to eat well. We want to lose weight. All that stuff is true because it turns out that most of the people who die from COVID are really obese. Okay, that so that is a reality. But you missed the point. Even those, if most of the ones who are dying now are the ones who are unvaccinated. But that is not only the issue. When he comes out and he says, mandates doesn't work. Come on, man. It's, we have the numbers to prove that mandates work. We, we have an experiment in Kansas. Two different cities in Kansas show one with a mandate, one without a mandate. They work. Okay? The same thing happens. As, as you increase mandates, the disease drops because people are forced to abide. Now, he may say, oh, it's unconstitutional. Well, it is unconstitutional. Is it unconstitutional for all those kids who are vaccinated with 10, 12, 15 different viruses, or rather vaccines, every year before they are allowed into school? No, it's not. So it is hogwash. I wish, I wish uh, Chuck Todd had hit him up about, well, that, does that mean that we'd stop giving people vaccines altogether? Because you're saying it is unconstitutional. It is not. Uh, he's saying we, want to, we don't want to screw up the economy. The only way not to screw up the economy is to make sure we bring down the infection rates. The only way we bring down the infection rates is to make sure people get vaccinated and where it's in high demand, wear masks. All things that the people who claim they are the economic guys, the Republicans, and by the way, Rip, by the way, I want, to, I want to state this fact for all our listeners. The economy always does worse under Republican presidents. That's not a question. That's a fact. You can look it up. Please look it up. Under Democratic rule, the economy always does better. And in recent times, we've always have to have somebody come and clean up a Republican mess vis-a-vis Bush, vis-a-vis Trump, constantly over and over because they simply shoot the economy because they are grifters who take the money's away. Remember that, folks. Very important to remember. Anyhow, you guys know exactly how I feel about billionaires. You know what I think. I really think that they built their companies on the back of us all. Uh, there's, there's not much that's going to change that belief. And I want you guys to listen to this in the right mode and listen to this keenly. Recently, Elon Musk went on, I guess it was on the internet or somewhere, and made silly statements about build back better and it shouldn't be done. It's best if it doesn't pass and what it's going to do to the economy, knowing absolutely nothing about economics. He may know how to build a car. He may know how to get other people to build cars for him. He may know how to get other engineers to fly people into space for him, but he knows not anything about economy or social programs, etc., so with that in motion, or that said, let's go ahead and listen to what Brother Farid Sakaria had to say on this particular issue, because I think it is so important that we don't let these charlatanes to take advantage of the reality of what's going on. In America, we tend to listen with rapt attention to the wisdom of people who have succeeded in the private sector. If they've made billions, we think, 
surely they must have profound insights into the world. And when the person speaking is obviously brilliant, this adds to our veneration. So when somebody as staggeringly rich and staggeringly intelligent as Elon Musk talks, people listen. Alas, what came out of Musk's mouth this week was a series of self-serving and ill-informed comments about President Biden's spending plans. Musk advised that it would be better if the bill doesn't pass because our spending is so far in excess of revenue, it's insane. Seemingly selfless, he explained that he didn't want any subsidies himself for his flagship company, Tesla, neither for charging stations nor for cars. I'm literally saying get rid of all subsidies. Some of this might be sour grapes. Tesla actually outgrew the federal government's tax credit on electric vehicles a long time ago. The federal government provides a $7,500 tax credit for electric vehicles, but they expire once the manufacturer has sold 200,000 of them, a mark Tesla crossed in 2018. In addition, the Biden bill adds $4,500 more in credits per car if the manufacturer uses unionized labor and Tesla does not. As for charging stations, one of Tesla's key advantages is that it already owns and operates thousands of them. Federal subsidies in the infrastructure bill that recently passed would simply erode that advantage by building new ones for all electric cars. It is bizarre and ironic that Elon Musk should be the tech billionaire who so opposes government spending. Three of Musk's endeavors, Tesla, SpaceX, and SolarCity, would probably not even exist if not for federal support. Tesla owners have for many years received generous tax credits and incentives from the federal and many state governments. And in 2010, after a global recession, when Tesla was a fraction of the size it is now, the company got a $465 million loan from the Department of Energy, which gave it a desperately needed shot in the arm. The state of Nevada gave Tesla a $1.25 billion tax incentive package to build its battery factory there. Solar City has benefited from all kinds of subsidies and tax credits that incentivize the production and installation of solar panels. And liftoff. And SpaceX's largest customers, of course, are federal government agencies, from NASA to the Department of Defense. Musk defends himself by saying he's in favor of getting rid of all subsidies because he wants those for oil and gas eliminated as well. Oil and gas subsidies should be pared back, but they really aren't as many as people seem to think. A 2018 study by the Energy Information Administration found that in fiscal year 2016, the renewable energy industry received almost half of all federal energy subsidies while generating just only one-eighth of the energy produced in the United States. This is as it should be. Green energy is the future, after all. Musk's comments on the budget were also disappointing. They seem to parrot conventional wisdom about budget deficits that has not been vindicated by evidence. Over the past 30 years, Governments like America and Japan have been able to run massive deficits, and yet interest rates have overall trended way down. Even today, rates remain low despite the surge in inflation. Does the market understand something that we don't? Infrastructure spending is essential, and there is really no serious argument against it when the cost of borrowing for the federal government is essentially zero. Musk admitted that America needs better airports and roads and better mechanisms to ease traffic in cities, but he seems unwilling to allow for the investments that would actually tackle these problems. The federal government's investment in green energy is very similar to what it did in the 1950s with computer chips, paying much more for a new technology so that the price could later come down for everyone. 
It resembles the investments government made in the 1960s to develop ARPANET, the first rough version of the internet, and later the global positioning system. These policies, incidentally, created the digital infrastructure, which made possible companies like PayPal, the original source of Elon Musk's billions. So as you can see, the grifter, Elon Musk, look, uh, you know, everybody talk about intelligence, intelligence, intelligence. I know a lot of intelligent people that are broke. Elon Musk did it right. He's, he, he knows how to make money. So we give him that. But as far as how he made his money, it was made on the backs of the taxpayers initially, starting from PayPal, which gave, gave him much of his wealth. So let's be clear here, which he was able to leverage for Solar, Solar City, uh, Tesla, and uh, Sky, whatever his other thing is. So let's, let's be clear here. Uh, the guy is a taker. And even as he built spaceships and all of that, the technology was developed by NASA. You know, they, they went ahead and they did a suborbital flight. And, oh, everybody went crazy about it. I'll be honest, folks. I, honest, I, I worked for NASA. Some of my software is on the space station. Let me say something. You can look it up, by the way. You don't have to take my word for it. Uh, here's, here's the interesting thing about it. Uh, the technology is developed by a whole lot of people. Not any one person. A whole lot of people. But what capitalism does is it allows a few to take advantage of the mind, the intellect, the work, the labor of everybody else. And that is what Musk has done. The full house today is to vote on whether to throw the book at Meadows, you know, chief of staff for Donald Trump. And Liz Cheney, I like the way they use her as the front person to actually put out the cause. But Liz Cheney, she's going above and beyond in doing what she needed to do. She really let Meadows have it. She really made the uh, minority leader of the House have it. She really let Republicans have it. She said, you guys, right after the insurrection was occurring, you guys came out and said it was Donald Trump. What's wrong now? Check this out, and then we'll take this on the other side. We know hours passed with no action by the president to defend the Congress of the United States from an assault while we were trying to count electoral votes, which was an official proceeding. This brings up another point. Mr. Meadows' testimony will bear on a key question in front of this committee. Did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes. Mr. Meadows' testimony will inform our legislative judgments on those issues. But Mr. Meadows has refused to give any testimony at all, even regarding non-privileged topics. That puts him in contempt of Congress. And let me pause and just note that we as Republicans used to be unified on this point in terms of what happened on January 6th and the responsibility the president had to stop it. We all remember, every one of us, what Republican leader McCarthy said on the floor of the House the following week. Quote, the president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. These facts require immediate action by President Trump. That was Republican leader McCarthy. 
Mr. Meadows has also got knowledge regarding President Trump's efforts to persuade state officials to alter their official election results. In Georgia, Mr. Meadows participated in a phone call between President Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Raffensperger. He was on the phone when President Trump asked the Secretary of State to, quote, find 11,780 votes to change the results of the election in Georgia. At the time of the call, Mr. Meadows, according to texts he has turned over, appears to have been texting at least one other participant on the call. Again, Mr. Meadows has no conceivable privilege basis to refuse to testify on that topic, and doing so puts him in contempt of Congress. Finally, in the weeks before January 6th, we know that President Trump's appointees at the Justice Department told him repeatedly that his claims of election fraud were not supported by the evidence. They told him the election was not, in fact, stolen. President Trump intended to appoint Jeffrey Clark as attorney general, in part so that Mr. Clark could alter the Department of Justice's conclusions regarding the election. Mr. Clark has now informed the committee that he anticipates potential criminal prosecution related to these matters, and he intends in upcoming testimony to invoke his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. As Mr. Meadows' non-privileged texts reveal, he was communicating multiple times with a member of Congress, a currently serving colleague of ours, who was working with Mr. Clark. Mr. Meadows has no basis to refuse to testify regarding those communications. He is in contempt. January 6th was without precedent. There has been no stronger case in our nation's history for a congressional investigation into the actions of a former president. We must investigate the facts in detail, and we are entitled to ask Mr. Meadows about the non-privileged materials he has produced to us. Any argument that the courts need to resolve privilege issues first is a pretext. We need to question him about emails and texts he has given us without any privileged claim. His role in the Raffensperger call cannot be privileged, nor can his dealings with a member of this body regarding Jeff Clark. We must get to the objective truth and ensure that January 6th never happens again. So again, Liz Cheney is doing exactly what she needs to do. I tell you what, for those of you who believe, uh, you know, let's just let the Republican Party die. I am not one of those. I think we do need opposition. And why do we need opposition? Good laws come from people who are going to look at those laws in certain, I don't, not necessarily an objective way, but look at those laws with all the faults they may have to make better laws. So those of you who just want universal democratic rule or whatever that may be, I don't agree with that because I tell you what, remember, we've just about had universal democratic role in 2008 when Obama got elected, rather 2009, when uh, during the Obama years. And what we've seen is that they can just be as neoliberal as any other Republican is. We couldn't get the full Obamacare as we wanted it, the Affordable Care Act. Then, just like the Build Back Better is having problems here, even though Democrats have control. What we need in Congress are progressives. We need Liz Cheney's help to get us through this little hump with putting those who need to be behind bars behind bars. But going forward, folks, remember, 
We have to get that progressive message out. We have to make sure and do what is necessary to move this country where it really needs to go. Today, we have the honor once again to speak with El Doctor, Dr. Manuel Pastor, is a distinguished professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. He currently directs the Equity Research Institute at USC. Pastor holds a, an economics PhD from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and is the inaugural holder of the Turpajan Chair in Civil Society and Social Change at USC. And I meant Turpan. How do you say that, Doctor? Turpanjian. It's an Armenian name. It's, it's an Armenian California. name. We know how to pronounce that. Yo hablo español, so I don't get it. <laughs> anyway, my friend, look, uh, it's been a, it's a pleasure to have you on. I think we've had you on a couple a year or so ago during the election period. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you know, here's here's something that I want I, the way I want to start this conversation. You it, it, th- this last election made you look like a genius. <laughs> That's all I need to say. Now run with it. Well, I think one of the things that I tried to point out when we talked is that people keep asking, uh, how are Latinos going to vote? As though Latinos are one single group. As though there's not variation by the country of origin, the geography where people live, and their political uh, predilections. And so one of the things... I think that came out of this last election that a lot of people were surprised by was the fact that Trump actually improved his standing with Latinos. And it's quite difficult to think that someone who was promising to deport your grandmother would actually wind up doing well amongst your people. But it was predictable because the Trump uh, campaign managed to push push the socialism button, talking about how Democrats were going to lead us toward socialism that was frightening to Cubans, to Venezuelans, to others in Florida. They also managed to push the law and order uh, button. That was actually something that was comforting to uh, Hispanics, which is what they call themselves in Texas, particularly in the borderlands, where, yes, they're worried about their undocumented cousins, but their uncle works for the Border Patrol, and they're worried about law and order. And I think the Trump campaign was also able to press the sort of small business entrepreneurship uh, trope, which actually also appeals as well. So it's amazing that someone who was that xenophobic could wind up doing that well. But yes, it was predictable. And thank you, Egberto, for remembering that I predicted it. Oh, well, I mean, look, when when I listened to you the last time, I just said, you know, what you're saying is making a whole lot of sense. Now, you know, Latinos, they like to group Latinos into one particular demographic. They like to group everybody into a particular demographic. And I think Whereas I believe in identity politics, doctor, I honestly believe in identity politics because if you don't have, if you if you did if you didn't have identity politics, it would say that we are all homogeneous and 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 everything is working fine. However, it has to be played exactly, not played. It has to be handled exactly right for what ails that particular identity. Why don't you explain how? trying to throw identity politics the wrong way with Latinos 
will always hurt the Democrats. I mean, look at what's happening in Congress right now with the way they're trying to pass the, uh, the, the, the Build Back Better bill with something that is unlikely to go through. Why don't you talk a little bit about that, if you will? I mean, I think the assumption is that because the Republican Party has moved so far in a nativist direction that virtually every Latino is going to wind up gravitating to the Democratic Party. But people are composed of many different impulses that make part of their identity. I mean, one of the things that you and I talked about during the campaign was thinking, for example, about Black voters. And people were surprised that in South Carolina, Black voters would go for uh, Joe Biden, whereas in California, Black voters wound up going for Senator Bernie Sanders. But those are two different kind of Black voters. Those South Carolina Black voters, they're more religious, they're more traditional, they've seen white backlash, so they're really maybe more comfortable with a white moderate who they think won't provoke so much backlash. Black folks in California, far more part of a radical tradition. That's, you know, there's a reason why the Black Panther Party was born in California and in its multiracial and more leftist politics. So every population needs to be decomposed by its own political and cultural history. A lot of that is specifically geographic. And that is particularly so for the Latino population. You've got Uh, Mexican-Americans who identify more as American than Mexican. You've got Chicanos who identify themselves. They may also be Mexican-American, but as part of a nationalist resistance to white domination. You've got Puerto Ricans that move back and forth between two locations. You've definitely got Cubans. And again, all of that varies as well by geography. And the big growth in the Latino population has also been folks from Panama, folks from Mm -hmm. Venezuela, folks from other parts of Latin America. And because of that heterogeneity, the Republicans have always had a chance. They've blown it time after time. And the interesting thing is going to be whether or not they're able to make further inroads. But it's really clear that when you've got Democratic politicians that are talking about the Latinx population, when the only people who use Latinx are young, hip Latinos in urban areas who like, you know, go to college and stuff, that it's like you're not really going to make an inroad, you know, when people don't use that term to describe themselves. What got shown in the Bernie Sanders campaign is that if you go to communities and listen to what they're really concerned about, you can make inroads. And that's what I think the Democrats need to do. Dr. Pastor, I'll tell you something. I, 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 didn't even, I wasn't even going to bring up the Latinx part in this particular discussion, but you opened that door. I, I, I think, you know, uh, many a times, many of the folks tend to talk about the Democratic Party as being elitist. We know that it's no less or no more elitist than the Republican Party. In fact, if we take a look at neoliberalism, it is a faction of both parties. And I don't know how indistinguishable they really are. But that said, um, what is it going to take for Democrats? Or do they even really care to just win 50 plus one or to really have 
a governing coalition that meets the needs, not only of Latinos. I mean, the needs of Latinos is equivalent. And, and I'm talking about uh, from, from a, 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 a fixed economic point of view, from the average, from, you know, I have a term I use. Whenever we unite the barrios, the ghettos, and Appalachia, we would have won. And the thing about it is those in the barrios, those in the ghettos, stereotypical, stereotypical, I know, and those in Appalachia share the same needs. The Democrats seem unable to unite their coalition in those terms and open or cede that spot to a party who cares nothing about those particular policies. Well, the Republican Party is actively trying to divide people and practice dog whistle politics to see whether or not they can stir a nativist reaction and maintain a vote. And you're seeing this right now in the way the maps are being gerrymandered. For example, in Texas, where 95% of the increase in the population yes. has been from Latinos, but they've actually drawn uh, new maps that uh, basically zero out any district where a black person could likely win and actually reduce the number of districts where Latinos can win. So, you know, the GOP can clearly be painted as not the answer. But the problem is that the Democrats have to make sure that they are seen as the answer. And the key thing is that what do Latinos in general care about? Education, better education for their kids better wages at the jobs that they have, a cleaner environment, because they're often the groups that are the most exposed to environmental hazards, and the opportunity to own a home, build assets, and accumulate some wealth. Those are such bread and butter issues. If you couple that with some promise and actually achieving some degree of immigration reform, you could really block the Latino constituency into the Democratic Party in the kind of way that the Black uh, constituency in the United States has been kind of a permanent part of the Democratic Party. But as you can see, Black folks feel like they are taken for granted by the Democratic Party, and Latinos also feel like they're taken for granted by the Democratic Party. But the Democratic Party looking forward needs to understand where the population growth is coming from. And one example, in the last 20 years, the number of young whites, folks who are not Hispanic white, below the age of 18, has actually fallen by 7 million. What does that mean? That means wow. each year there are less and less new white voters. They're both aging out and passing away, and you're not seeing an increase in the youth population. In that last same 20-year period, there's been 70 million, uh, 7 million new young Latinos. And each year, about 10 times as many Latinos turn 18 as Latino immigrants naturalize. So that young voting population is totally up for grabs. The Democrats could make big inroads because young voters tend to be more liberal, tend to be open to diversity, and also tend to have very bread and butter issues such as college debt and good jobs in the future. But they're alienated, 
they don't vote, and they're not the target of democratic outreach. This is basically wasted resources for a democratic majority. Now, uh, Dr. Um, Pastor, I am going to this is a da- this I'm going to go into a rather dangerous area now. You haven't been doing dangerous areas already. Well, that's true. I have. But, you know, you know what I mean? Um, this this is interesting because I wonder too often if this isn't by design. I want to give you a postulate certain things. When we when we were working for something like the Affordable Care Act, that would have pr- predominantly helped Latinos, blacks and many others. Uh, we had a 60 votes in, in the Senate and we had a huge uh, overvote in, in Congress. And still we found it difficult to make the Affordable Care Act in such a manner that it really was a people centric type insurance policy. Now we have two. We broke the infrastructure bill, Build Back Better and the physical infrastructure bill into two pieces, one that benefits, you know, whom most of the times. And the other that would be just that build back better, give people, give people health care, better health care, give people the ability to go ahead and get a job because their kids now have uh, child care. All these great things. And still Plus, universal pre-K, which is incredibly important for low income families, for their kids to be able to get a start at schooling and then do well when they actually turn into third grade and sixth grade math and reading tests. Magic, magic. And my point here is, doctor, is that all these policies that are easy to attain exactly what you're talking about is the difficult part that Democrats are having to pass. No, we can kill the filibuster for not making the debt go, I mean, by raising the debt limit, we can kill the bill for all these things. But for things that are particular to Latinos and others, it's a big issue. Do you really, and here's a question that I talk about being dangerous, and I really want an honest opinion here. We always talk about republicanism and white supremacy and that sort of thing, or wanting to keep power in certain hands. Could it be that this is really not necessarily a partisan thing as far as the difficulty or the ease with which one could hold on to the Latino vote because you're really seeing that that's where we're heading? Well, you know, that's a hypothesis and we can talk more about it. I think even before we get there, there's just a tremendous amount of foolishness that's going on on the part of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. To build on the example that you're talking about, you know, for the longest period of, what what is in that bill? What is in that bill is uh, caring for the elderly, mm-hmm. extending health care, providing child care, providing universal pre-K, caring for the planet by investing in climate resilience, and a series of other things that might have led us to call that bill an investment in our caring economy. What did it get called instead? Reconciliation. Yes. What the hell is reconciliation? Yes. It's yes. a process word, right? Which suggests that uh, you have no narrative, no message to really appeal to people. And you're talking just about process issues that are interesting 
to folks in Congress or to political reporters rather than to people in their daily lives. So I think there's a tremendous amount of foolishness going on around the narrative and the messaging that ought to be there to really attract the support that would be possible. Even Build Back Better is kind of tough because so many communities feel like they were left behind and kept behind that when you're saying build back, you're wondering, well, maybe it'll be better, but that whole back thing wasn't working for me. So how do you really shift the message? And maybe that's where you're right, which is that if you were really serious about this, you would really work on the messaging, the narrative, and the political organizing to engage those folks. Let me just give you an example from California, where we know the polling data pretty well. This seems to be true at a national level, but it's also true, but it's been proven by about 12 years of polling in California. When you ask Californians, do you care about climate? Do you think that the climate crisis is a very serious crisis that threatens our quality of life and our economy? About half of white Californians say yes. About 57, 58% of Black and Asian Californians say yes. Two-thirds of Latino Californians say yes. So when you think about the way climate gets messaged uh, as a general concern or something probably mostly white environmentalists care about, in fact, Latinos care deeply about it. Why? Because the climate crisis is associated with bad air and asthma in our neighborhoods, because there's a climate gap in terms of who's subject really to heat waves and wildfires and so many of these other disasters. And so what about if the Democratic Party really lifted up the climate crisis as a racial justice issue? Could it have more appeal and it made more constituencies I think it might. So I think that's where perhaps the big failure of the Democratic Party is, is you've got these constituencies that are really ripe for the taking and then ripe for the cementing into a permanent majority and coming up short. Now, doctor, it is it is evident that you know what you're talking about. You've already been you've already called out what occurred in 2016 or rather 2020. But moreover, I think it is clear that, um, yeah, well, it, it is clear what you're saying. Um, and it is clear you've done your research, etc. My concern is this. Um, there are a lot of smart people that are paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in messaging for a party who's collected a whole lot of money. You called it foolishness. That's what you called it. Is it foolishness or is it some sort of intentionality? Your thoughts? I really, I mean, I, I, you, you hadn't answered that quite, uh, you know, the, the, way, the way I expected to, because I, I, I cannot sit back here, professor or doctor, and feel that these guys cannot be that ill-informed or ill-advised. Why haven't they come to see El Señor Manuel Pastor, who has studied this item? You've been all over the newspapers, New York Times, everywhere else. Why haven't they said, come on our team? Well, there's been a significant 
underinvestment in Latino mobilization. It's been pointed to over and over again. I think that one of the things that's true, and then we'll just jump into the intentionality piece, is that there's this tremendous business of politics where consultants make a tremendous amount of money and repeat things in ways that are supposed to make elites feel comfortable and like things are manageable. And one of the things we know from the research is that if you're, I mean, a couple of things I think happened in the last campaign too, is that Latinos respond more to high touch than a high tech. Mm -hmm. So you need a ground game to really mobilize people to get out to vote. Uh, Whatever set of reasons, just text messages and TV is not going to do it. You need door knocking that goes on. Second, uh, you need to uh, actually operate in the world of Spanish. There's a lot of Latinos who are perfectly uh, comfortable with speaking English, who nonetheless get their news from in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Because if you watch Univision, Univision or Telemundo, yeah. Telemundo, a lot of the stories there are things that you and I might be interested in the mm-hmm. immigrant experience, Latino small businesses. You know, it's just kind of stuff you're interested in that's not being covered in main quote unquote mainstream media. One of the problems is that the level of disinformation, not in not only Vision and Telemundo, but the level of social media disinformation in Spanish is much higher than it is in English. Mm-hmm. And there was no concerted campaign because people who were running these big campaigns weren't listening in Spanish or not speaking Spanish to say, well, we really need to combat the stuff that's saying that Democrats are socialist because they're not saying Democrats are socialists. They're saying, los democratas, esos son socialistas, ellos van a tomar todo tu propiedad. Exactamente. Y todo eso, right? And what's happening is that if that's not being listened to and combated, you're going to get a lot of disinformation. So, I mean, I know enough Democratic leaders to know that there are people of goodwill who really want to do the right thing. And then there's a lot of people who are engaged in political malpractice. And I think the problem is that for the most part, saying you're frustrated with democratic political leaders and then turning to uh, Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Kevin McCarthy, it's like a really unappealing alternative. Yes. Yes, it is unappealing, completely unappealing. I, I, I can't see it. But uh, we are running uh, low on time, Dr. Pastor. So, um, you know, you've been with me before. You know the last question I'm going to ask. What would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? I think that we need to focus on young Latino voters, that we need to, there's a great group in Texas called JOLT. And what it's realized is that mobilizing the older Hispanic voter, that's one thing, but getting young millennials who, for example, 
they might think of themselves as Latino, but they often think of themselves as quite mixed mm -hmm. because they might have a lot of friends who are white or black or Asian. A lot of them are much more comfortable with different kinds of sexualities. They're really interested in social media. They're very interested in the relief of college debt. They're very interested in what their career is going to look like. I think our real big task is mobilizing young voters. And Egberto, I think that's worthy of a conversation the next time we get together, which is how do we make sure that this conversation about mobilizing a Latino vote doesn't just picture someone my age, but asks the question, how do you get the 18 to 22 year old to participate to look? Because when someone votes in a particular way in their first few elections, that locks them in generally for decades to come. So it's one thing to persuade older people to swing one direction in one election or another. I mean, the gold at the end of the rainbow is getting these younger voters to lock in to a particular perspective and a particular party. And I think that they think very differently and we need to think like they do to get them on board. We have a date. Another one coming up exactly on that issue. Dr. Manuel Pastor, professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. It's been my honor once again to have you with us. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Como siempre, un gran placer. As always, a great pleasure. Muchísimas gracias, señor. Adios. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics done right.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That's it, folks. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage...